from God together. As I said, if you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 14. If you don't have one, we do have one in our resource library as well. Please take it home. Please read it. Please absorb it. All of those things. But as we enter into this new day and age, as we often read a statement like this and watch the news, I'm often going, what in the world is going on, Lord? My heart gets troubled a little bit as I think about what is happening. But the reality is this, is that Christians are supposed to be the greatest realists. And somebody was joking around with me uh, a few months ago, and I was like, I seek to be a realistic person. And they said, you mean you're a pessimist trying to be a realist? And I said, okay, fair. That's fair. And I was talking to even my father uh, a while ago, my dad, and I was talking to him about something, and, uh, he, and I was just laying out the facts. I was like, I don't think it's going to get any better. And he's like, that sounds fatalistic. And I said, no, dad, it's realistic. There's a difference. And I combated him on that one. You know, there's a song that is called Don't Worry, Be Happy. It came out, of, out in the 80s, and you can sing along with it. And it basically talks about how this life is all there is, and because this is all it is, we should just keep trying to have a great old time. Don't worry, be happy. We also have instances like, uh, we could be a stoic though, and you could be a stoic, and they have this tendency to kind of push through because life's not going to get any better, and, but we're just going to ignore what's around us, and we're going to keep going forward. But that is not the Christian mantra. It's different for Christians. Christians can face their troubles as they do, they will, and as they do, they will find a great hope in their confidence of the future, because my future is set. As a Christian, we believe that. We hold to that. Every time we come together around the table, we remind each other, we preach to one another, we proclaim to one another of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, which is not just for now, but also has a future implications. This world, as messy as it is, will be set right by our holy God. As we look at these things, Christians are the world's greatest realists but also the world's great optimists. Because trusting God to uphold us, we can be honest about the world and life since we look ahead to a heaven where our hope are held fast and secure. This is why we gather on a Sunday. Because it's been a rough week and we're coming together to remind each other, to put our eyes back up onto the cross of where our hope is found. To bring it to the Lord of our circumstances, right? rather than on our circumstances. You can think about death. Christians don't just talk about someone passing away, but we face it. And we know that death is real. The same is true of life's other hardships, sickness, poverty, injustice, loneliness, and fear. Christians can be realistic and realists about all these things because of the great hope that we have with our Lord who will make all things new. Remember back in, 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 in chapter 13 of John, it, it pretty, it's pretty understandable as we get into, as we will see in John chapter 14, Jesus gives this call to the disciples, do not be troubled, do not be worried. And Jesus gives this command as they move forward together, a promise to come and to take them to be with him and declare that he and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be reading from John chapter 14 all the way to 1 to 14. And the word of the Lord says this, 
Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may, also, may, may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still, and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do, not believe, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me speaks his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also be the works that will also do the works that I do, and greater works than the, the, these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we enter into a time in our country where I kind of scratch my head and I go, what's happening? But Lord, you are sovereign and you are providential over all of this. So Lord, we rest in you and we seek to be faithful with what you have called us to do and to be, to declare your word to the nations. So Lord, as we come together, as we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word, we pray for other churches here in London who are gathering very much the same way. And I think of Stony Creek and Pastor Mark and Andy and the elders there, that you would give them the wisdom that they need to shepherd the flock that you've entrusted to them. That you would bless them as they seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that as a, as a, as a church here in London, Lord, that we would gather together and that we would boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, as we continue to worship you through the preaching of the word, God, I can't do this on my own. There's no possible way I can make this turn out well. So, Lord, by your spirit, Lord, will you help this sermon turn out well. Give me the necessary power and the appropriate affection. And please use this sermon, Lord, to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. The trouble may never go away in our lives. But what are you seeking to fixate your eyes on? This is, what the, this is the perspective that Jesus comes in, in this few verses, the first few verses, 1 to 6. He tells us and reminds us of, as we look at verses 1 to 6, the way to the Father. Go back to chapter 13, and Jesus has just told Judas to go and get done what he needs to get done. And what Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 14 is said in the shadow of Judas's betrayal and Peter's failure. These are things that are happening or going to happen. And a couple of questions must be going on. What type of comfort do these words bring us? Where was Jesus about to go? And Philip himself asks these, these very questions. Jesus is 
hour is coming, the, the coming of that agony of Gethsemane where he would be praying to his father and it would be such an agonizing experience for him that he would be sweating blood. It's coming. And the death on the cross, those are all things that are troubling Jesus' heart. He also tells him, his disciples, where he's going to go, what he's going to do, how he, how he will rejoin them. He tells them what they should and shouldn't do, and they shouldn't be troubled, but trust in God and in him. Right off the bat, right in those first verses, that verse 1, I see something interesting come through, that the anxiety's antidote is active trust. Jesus calls his disciples as they face the unknown to trust him. Why? Because he goes to prepare a place for him. So he says, believe in God. Believe also in me. And this doesn't mean that all we can do is face the realities of troubles and kind of just be like a stoic and just give up. And Jesus' point is that there's reason not to be troubled by them. Let not your hearts be troubled, he said. And then he gives a reason. Believe in God, believe also in me. So according to Jesus, Christians are to be realists, not only about our troubles, but also about the power and the goodness of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Being realistic about our God and our Savior is the antidote of the troubles that we honestly face. We don't sweep them under the cover, uh, under the carpet. You know, one of my, my pet peeves often is I will say, or someone says to me, hey, how are you doing? What is the answer? Oh, I'm great. I'm fine. I'm like, that's, I'm not going to say it. You lie. Sometimes, sometimes it is great. We're not here to ignore them, but to face them with honesty in light of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is a great statement even of Jesus' deity. He identifies God and Himself equally as objects of the disciples' faith. And what is it about trusting Jesus that gives peace to troubling hearts? Just believe in Jesus. You're good to go. Why, though? The answer is in the gospel. It's seeing Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's seeing that God shed his blood for our forgiveness. As John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Is seeing and meditating from Isaiah 1, verse 18, which says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That our sins are washed and made as white as snow. It's believing what Jesus says here in verses 2 and 3, which is the glory that awaits all those who sinned and are forgiven by Jesus. So he comes and he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why? Verse 3, or verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? Is this you? Do you believe the gospel? 
Are you resting in the gospel? Then this promise is for you. It's with this promise that we can say along with the writer of Hebrews. uh, My discipleship group was just walking through this chapter this past week. And we talked a lot about this. Verse 6 of Hebrews 13. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So we read a statement like this. And we say, what can man do to me? Which is from Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, and I think as we walk with people through troubling times, it is important for us as Christians to encourage each other to fixate our eyes back on the one who is sovereign over all of those circumstances. Because the circumstances may not change. You may continue to walk through that valley. But let us fixate on our prize. Because what is the prize? Verse 2. Jesus tells his disciples that there is plenty of room for him. And Jesus is going to prepare a place for his followers there. And he guarantees that he will return for them and take them to, to be with him. It will be, he's going to prepare that place in heaven, for his own. And the Holy Spirit, as Jesus goes and prepares a place for his own, the Holy Spirit prepares the redeemed on earth for their place in heaven. And this is the new temple, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. These are the things that we wait for. And did you catch the guarantee that Jesus gives? I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And Jesus is going to prepare a place for his followers there. And the fact that he does so guarantees that he will return for them and take them with him. That's why when we come around the table as a church family, we say that at the end, we declare that he is coming until he comes again. There are to trust that he will come for them and to take them to be with him. This time in your life, this place as you are here where God wants you is just a blip in comparison to eternity. Believing this point and trusting what Jesus says will make it so that their hearts are not troubled by the fact that they can't follow him where he's going. And what's amazing about comfort that brings to what is amazing about this comfort that troubles for our troubled soul? It brings us great comfort. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a worrier. I worry a lot. I think it's why I'm gray, to be honest. Someone says to me, oh, how old you are? And I say, how old I, I am? And I go, really? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how old I am. I met someone this past week who's like, guess how old I am? And I said, I guess, because they, they gave me a hint. I was off by one year, which was great. And th- that individual looked like they were 25. And I said, this isn't unfair. <laughs> but I'm a worrier. I myself, I struggle with anxiety. Even the fact that a couple nights ago, I could not, not a couple nights ago, a few weeks ago, I could not sleep because my mind was racing like crazy. And Jesus here says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I wish I took the time at that moment of me rolling around in bed to do what I should do. Preach to myself the gospel. As Jesus' answers to the troubled soul is to point up, to remind me, and to remind you 
of a hope. The outcome of what Jesus says in verse 5 is that Thomas is a little confused as to what is happening. And Jesus is actually not pointing to a physical place. He's talking about heaven. And Thomas is thinking about a literal place. And Jesus' reply shows Thomas hasn't quite wrapped his mind around all that Jesus has to say. So Jesus gives this answer to his confusion. Jesus is the way. In order to get this, we need to see that Jesus going to the Father means his death is a substitute for his people. The way to the Father goes through the cross. And the death of Jesus is the way to the Father, also in the sense that all who would serve Jesus must follow him and take up their cross and follow in his footsteps. The way to the Father is the way of being cleansed by Jesus and following his example. Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ that he shed for you on the cross? Have you believed the gospel, that Christ died for your sins and that he rose again, that he ascended to the right hand of God, that he will return? Are you following his example? Are you growing in Christ's likeness? Are you being a disciple of Jesus? That is what it means, that Jesus is the way. But Jesus is the truth. It means everything he says corresponds to reality, including these things that he just said and the things that he will say. He is also the one who gives life. Life is in him. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. God gave, him to ha- God gave him the ability to have life in himself, as John 5.26 says. He... His words are spirit and life, as John 6 says. And the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. And this happens only through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If anyone ever comes and tells you that there are many roads in order to get to heaven or to get to God, they are lying to your face. There is only one way, and it's only through Jesus Christ. This is a strong affirmation that Christ alone is the way of salvation. To imagine and proclaim other ways is to mislead people and forget the necessity of his coming and redemption. If there were many other ways to get to heaven, why in the world did Jesus have to die? Jesus died for our sins. And it's to deny what Jesus even says here. See, Jesus is the way to the Father, and there is no way to heaven except through Jesus. And to go through Jesus is to have him cleanse you by his blood, which was shed for your sins on the cross, to follow his example. But there's a practice, there's a practice aspect to this, there's a practical aspect to this belief. In that belief, we have a great hope that can't be taken away, a hope that calms the biggest storms in our life, light that shines in the darkness. We can embrace the reproach of Christ and rejoice because of the knowledge that is only found in Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We are. We can embrace the reproach of that 
And knowing that we have a great shepherd that walks with us through the valley and the peaks, Jesus is the only way to the Father as he is the one who represents the Father as we see right here in verses 7 to 11. Jesus represents the Father. And I think if a Christian is honest, they know what Philip is talking about in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father. You know, there are times when God seems distant from us and our hearts uh, desire a, a tangible sign of God's presence and reality. And Jesus' disciples were confused and troubled about Jesus' leaving. So Philip asks Jesus for an experience that would make their belief in God real. So in verse 7, he comes along and he says this, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What you read here is not the first time that Jesus even says this. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And Philip's request in verse 8 shows that he doesn't quite have an understanding. He doesn't quite grasp what was going on. And then Jesus takes the time to explain to him in verse 9 what is happening. This is another great passage talking about what is called the triune God. Three coexisting, co-eternal persons who are God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is reminding Philip that he is the one who reveals God, just as Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 to 6, where at the end in verse 6 it says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you ever seen a, a symbol that tries to explain the Trinity? There's the diamond, or not the diamonds, the triangle, the circles, three circles that are overlapping. Uh, my kid, one of my children, one of my kids, yeah, one of my kids on um, this past week, one of their school projects was to make an illustration of, uh, of the Trinity, which was like pulling teeth for my wife because I wasn't there um, because it was, he hates cutting and pasting. Uh, now you know who it is, uh, which is unfortunate for him. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm not the only child in this room who had to deal with that. Uh, had to deal with that. So, but they t- made this tr- triangle trying to, to illustrate the Trinity, that there is one God. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And this is what Jesus explains in verse Verse 10. The Father is doing his work in the words that Jesus speaks. By means of the words Jesus speaks, the Father works just as he speaks the world into existence through the word that we see in John 1, verse 3. So in verse 11, he comes along and he says this, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus commands his disciples to believe that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him. And Jesus commands his followers to believe that we, what we are to believe and believe. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God, but each is not the other. If the disciples find this hard to understand or believe, Jesus says, hey, look at what I've done. Who else could raise someone from the dead? Who else could make the blind see? Who else could feed 5,000 people? Who else could do any of these things but God himself? I love this because Jesus helps those who are having a hard time wrapping their mind around an infinite God and he teaches them gently to consider the way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit all work together. In John's Gospel, Father, Son, and Spirit all give life. They all proclaim the future and indwell believers. So Jesus says, I represent the Father. This is who I am. And Jesus points to his works as a confirmation of who he is. Now he points his disciples who are troubled and confused and have those hearts that are weighed down and don't know what's happening. What do you mean, Jesus? Someone's going away to betray you. Who's going to betray you, Jesus? What do you mean Peter's going to deny you? Like, Peter's the strongest guy here. He's got a sword. Now he points his disciples' troubled and confused hearts to those same works to bolster their faith. We struggle so much, and we forget. Can we agree that we're fickle? I don't care who you are. I don't care how old you are. We all struggle with remembering that our God has always been faithful. And we need time to go through and get back into the word of God together in community and on Sundays to remind each other that our God is faithful, that he is indeed working out all things for our good and for his glory. That that situation that you're walking in, there is a purpose to that. But not only that, let us remind each other and take our eyes off of that and to the one who's Lord over those circumstances. They work together to do only what God can do. And Jesus represents the Father. And as Jesus represents the Father, Jesus also calls his disciples to represent him in verses 12 to 14. The Trinity is an important teaching or, or doctrine. Without it, we can't explain much of what the Bible talks about when, in regards to who God is. If you reject the Trinity, you're in trouble. We're in John 14, verses 12 to 14. And that's what, we, well, that's what we see here. We've been shown how Jesus represents the Father, but now he has his disciples, he's calling his disciples to represent Jesus. In verse 12, we see the greater works than this. History shows that Jesus is not talking about or affirming that each believer will do greater miracles than he did. Okay, there's not a lot, there, there was only one time that 5,000 people were fed with some fish and some, and some bread. But the church's witness, our mission as a body of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and her fruit, our fruit among the nations will be greater than Jesus' works in number and scope. Jesus spent his entire ministry, all three years, in Palestine, in Israel. But once he died, his disciples scattered and they brought the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. The Apostle Paul walking all through Europe and, and, and Northern Africa and in and, and, and the Middle East. The gospel went further. 
and further, and more people were called to himself. See, during Jesus' life, he reached the people in his area, and the church, under Christ as her head, preaches the gospel to all nations and disciples people of every tribe and every tongue. And here again in verses 12 to 13, Jesus has just said that the Father who dwells in him does his works through the word Jesus speaks. And now Jesus says that those who believe in him will do the work that he does. Here's the point of what he is saying. Belief in Christ is more than just head knowledge. There is an overflowing in our lives. Jesus says that those who believe in him will do what he does. Believing in Jesus means becoming like Jesus. You can't come up on a stage and say, Jesus is my homeboy without some sort of aspect in the life that has changed. If someone is not becoming more and more like Jesus, the implication is that they do not believe in Jesus. Remember verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And Jesus says that the Father does his works through the words Jesus spoke, and this gives us what is actually meant by the word works Jesus uses uses in verse 12. It is also words that will be spoken. The works of Jesus are seen are seen as we and accomplished as we go out proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a saying, always preach the gospel, but only use words when necessary. I hate that saying. Because Jesus himself says you got to actually speak. It doesn't mean that you don't act like a jerk, and that's you only get to speak. Your words should match your actions. But we have to go and speak the words that Jesus has. And this helps us. It helps us to understand how Jesus can go on to say at the end of verse 12 that those who believe in him will do greater works because he is going to the Father. Jesus will go to the Father by dying on the cross. The works of his disciples will do that his disciples will do will be greater for the same reason that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than, the, than John the Baptist. Because Christ will have accomplished the long-anticipated salvation on the cross. Because Jesus goes to the Father, those who believe in Jesus will benefit from the full and final revelation of God's climactic and triumphant salvation and the outpouring of his Spirit upon us. This is what we get to do as disciples of Jesus who make disciples. We go out and we proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Not only did he die, but he rose again three days later. And after 40 days, he ascended to heaven, but he's coming back. And we go out representing Jesus doing that. So in verse 13, he says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Uh, Let's stop here for a sec and talk about this. This, this, let's talk about this moment here. This does not mean that every time you pray in Jesus' name that Jesus is just going to answer your prayers. You ever had that? Who's here has had a prayer that hasn't been answered the way that you like? I sure have. 
I have plenty of those. To pray in Jesus' name is to identify with the purpose of Jesus to the extent that our will has become identified with the will of God. Did you catch that? To pray in Jesus' name is to identify with the purpose of Jesus to the extent that our will has become identified with the will of God. That's John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Or in 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We've all prayed something or requests, and we have been surprised by the answer uh, that didn't quite happen in the way that we thought. I have a list in my prayer journal of of things that I pray for, and then I try to mark in there how they've been answered. And I must be honest that I don't think any of them have been answered the way that I thought that they should be. And that's okay. We all have prayed something, a request, and have been surprised and have been surprised by how they've been answered in a different way and have been better answers than what we were thinking. And sometimes the answer may be no, which can be the best answer. But in all of this, we trust and believe that God is who he said he is, that the words of the disciples are in view in in verse, the words to the disciples are in view of verse 12, guide our understanding of what verses 13 and 14 say, where, where Jesus says he will do whatever his disciples ask in his name. Jesus isn't a cash machine. And I think we abuse him for that. I've used this illustration before, asking my dad. I said, Dad, I need a car so I can get to school. And my dad says, well, what's the need? I need to get to school. I need a car so I can get to school. And he's like, no, what's the need? And I said, I need, well, I guess to get to school. And he says, well, here's $2 for the bus. He answers, God answers his prayers. See, the, true, the, the two controlling modifiers of what Jesus' promises here are, one, that the requests be in the name of Jesus, and two, that they result in the Father being glorified in the Son. A request in the name of Jesus is a request that is in keeping with the character and the mission of Jesus. Dear Lord, please give me a million dollars. Although I think these days a million dollars isn't a lot of money. But how does that meet those modifiers? The gospel tells us what Jesus sets out to accomplish, that the Father's name would be hallowed. Jesus does not promise to grant requests that are not are out of step with his character and his purpose, chiefly to magnify the glory of the Father. That's why we pray, God, will you not glorify yourself? I've prayed, I don't know how many times, God, take this pandemic away. This sucks. Lack of a better word, probably. And God has obviously answered, no. You know what the outcome of almost two years in the pandemic has been? I have seen God work in people's lives in amazing ways that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this pandemic. 
God is providential and he's sovereign over these situations. And Paul expresses much the same. The valley in, in 2 Corinthians, the valley you may be going through right now, the valley you are asking that God would bring you out of, the best answer might be no. So that we can learn something greater. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what do we do with all of this? I think something to remember is that as Jesus represents the Father, so we represent the Son. We can gladly embrace the reproach of Christ and rejoice in the knowledge of the truth, waiting for his return by doing the works he has done and inviting others to the knowledge of that same truth. In John 13, 36, it says this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. See, Jesus announced that he is going where they can't go yet, and then tells them that they aren't to be troubled over this, but to trust him and trust the Father. And Jesus takes time to explain all of that and what they are to believe. And what are the disciples to believe? They are to believe that by going away to the Father, Jesus is accomplishing salvation and preparing the new creation and will one day return to take them to be with him. Jesus himself is the way to the Father. His words are true and life-giving. And Jesus is the way to the Father because the cross reconciles us to the Father and models that kind of self-sacrificial life that those who follow Jesus are to live. And maybe also add this, Jesus is coming back. You want to be on the right side. If Jesus isn't the way, the truth, and the life for you, if you haven't repented and believed and rested in the good news of Jesus Christ, the only other option is the pure wrath of God being poured on, on you. Jesus is Jesus absorbed God's wrath for me when he died on the cross. When I repent and believe in that, his righteousness is imputed upon me. Jesus is my substitutionary atonement. He took that punishment for me. But if I reject Jesus, guess what I get? All of that wrath that was poured out on the cross. Jesus just doesn't point to the direction, though but tells them of this Trinitarian truth. He is the Father, and the Father is in him. On top of this intimate information, Jesus promises to answer all the prayers of those who seek to fulfill the task he gives them to do. We are to believe Jesus. We are to believe that Jesus taught, what Jesus taught about the way to God. We are to believe the Trinity. We are going to get mocked for this, 
maybe by a, some sort of rationalistic, materialistic individual or other religions, but we must find what Jesus says more compelling than their own logic or dogma. Because Jesus represents the Father, so we represent the Son. We can gladly embrace the reproach of Christ and rejoice in, knowing, in the knowledge of the truth, waiting for his return by doing the works he has done and inviting others to the knowledge of that same truth. Let us pray, let us continue to worship and rest in that same truth. Father God, I thank you so much for the reminder from your word of what you have called us to do and to be. Father, I pray that we would represent you well for your glory here in London. May we go out continuing to worship you. Amen.